Good afternoon, and welcome to Suite 212, here on London's most energising and exciting radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. Today, however, we're not coming to you live, or even from the Resonance studio, as our dear friends at Navara Media have kindly agreed to help out with our pre-record, and Navara FM host James Butler is behind the controls. When he's not giving you thoughtful, intelligent reflections on politics and culture, he's helping others to do the same. Or at least I like to think so. There's more crossover between us and Navarra FM today, as we're both covering the 50th anniversary of the insurrections of May 1968 on our Resonance FM programmes. And indeed, James interviewed today's guest, Mitchell Abador, at the Institute Francaise last week. Mitch is a writer and translator who lives in Brooklyn, who's been in London this week to promote his new book, May Made Me, an oral history of the 1968 uprising in France, which has just been published by Pluto Press. He has also translated works by pretty much every important figure of the French left, including revolutionary Marxist Victor Serge, the early 20th century socialist politician Jean Jaurès, the 19th century radical Louis-Auguste Blanqui, the Saint-Culotte of the French Revolution, and the Communards of Paris of 1871. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you, Juliet. Sweet 212's remit, as regular listeners will know, is to provide a social, political and historical look at the arts. And here, we're looking at the cultural influences on the protests of May 68, how they use art, and how they change the landscape across Western Europe. For a more straight-up political analysis of the events, you know where to turn. As some of you will know, our programme's named after a work by Namjoon Pike, often called the founder of video art. And yet we've not focused specifically on film in any of our broadcasts to date, something I've been keen to rectify. So today, we're talking about the role of film and filmmaking in May 68, from the institutional decision that helped spark the protests, to the direct involvement of filmmakers in the movement, the cinematic works that came out of May 68, the tumultuous decade that followed, and the legacy that film helped to form. So, Mitch, I wondered if we could start by um, just giving our listeners an overview of how the protests sort of began, where they began, and uh, in particular, an important decision by the French cultural minister that fed into the protests. Uh, sure. So the, it depends on how far, how far back we, we want to go. The events all start uh, at the University of Nanterre, which was built west of Paris because... Uh, the Sorbonne was overcrowded, and uh, so they needed to offload some students, and they moved them. They built a, this awful campus in the west of uh, Paris at Nanterre, which would take in students who lived on the western, primarily the western part of Paris. It was, uh, in, a, in a sense, it was a, a kind of idea that blew up in the faces of the authorities, because students who were in uh, the at the Sorbonne or any of the schools in the uh, on the left bank. There's a social life there. You could move around, and you can go to bookstores, and you can do things. Nanterre, once you were out there, you were stuck. And, uh, and it was, I interviewed a number of people who went to Nanterre, and so everybody just had to like group together you, you know, because you couldn't go anywhere else. And so s- troubles began there in late 1967 about an issue that had been settled in the States uh, 
five or six years before about boys going to the girls' dorm and vice versa. So not there. There's a first explosion about that. So when people talk about how it all began over boys and girls' dorms, it really was uh, an early event in the, in the events. 1968 comes, and there's a couple events within the school, and then, as you said, uh, some events outside the school, film-related, that do also feed into it. Within the school, there's Kon Bendit gets in an argument with the uh, Minister of uh, Youth and Sports. There actually was a Minister of Youth and Sports. Gets in, argu- in an argument with him, accuses him of fascism for saying well, if kids want to think about sex, they'd be better off going swimming in the brand-new swimming pool. But also at, a, at around the same time, so once we get to February and March, there's first off in February, uh, Andre Malraux, the Minister of Culture, fires the founder of the Cinematheque, you know, the god of cinephilia in France, Henri Langlois. And he fires Langlois for being a terrible, terrible, terrible administrator. And in fact, he was an absolutely horrendous administrator. If you read like, accounts of it, films were stored in his bathtub. It was, it, was a, it, was, it was a mess. However, he was a god of cinephilia, not just in France, but all over the world. So many of uh, French filmmakers, though, got their film education at the Cinematheque that firing him caused a huge explosion. And uh, directors came to, the, came to his support. They wanted Malraux fired. They wanted uh, uh, Langlois restored to office. And there are films of the demonstrations outside the Cinematheque with Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who a month or so later would become famous for as the leader of the March 22nd movement in Nanterre, was really active in it, as were several of the other people that I interviewed, and also people who would go on to, uh, to participate in militant and left-wing filmmaker making during and after the events, people like Alain René and uh, Godard. And interestingly, even somebody who we think of as standing outside political filmmaker like making, like Francois Truffaut, was probably the most vocal of all the filmmakers. And he opens his 1968 film, uh, Stolen Kisses, with a shot of the gates closed at the Cinematheque and dedicating the film to Henri Langlois. So film plays a, a catalyzing role because as a symbolic event, firing somebody that everybody respected by somebody who's viewed as a fossil, like Andre Malraux, who had once been a hero of the left with, uh, with his two great novels, but who had moved increasingly to the right. And it also showed just how out of touch with, uh, with the public, the government, uh, especially the young public, the government had become. So Malraux is fired, and then shortly, a month later, he gets restored. A month later, there's a demonstration, an anti-Vietnam War demonstration, at the American Express office near the uh, near the opera, which goes which turns sour, people smash windows, people get arrested, and which sets off the occupation two days later at Nanterre of the administrative tower, and this is the real beginning of the event. It's March twenty second. The movement that would come out of this occupation be the March twenty second movement. We move ahead. Things. Stuff goes on at Nanterre, they occupy, they get thrown out. The students who were arrested at the anti-war demonstration are going to be expelled. Students gather, there's many different stories why they were gathered, 
But May 3rd, students gather in the courtyard of the Sorbonne. The cops come in. And as many of the people who I interviewed said, they can't explain why, but this was just it. And they started throwing stones. And within a week, France is a completely different country. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many uh, kind of international uh, influences on the events, I think. I mean, you would have to... I think, consider the context of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, even if the kind of subsequently vocal Maoist section of um, of the French left, which of course included Jean-Luc Godard, even if they weren't so directly involved with the um, the events of May '68, I think you have to think about the um, not just the Prague Spring of April that year when the um, the government of Alexander Dubček and the sort of more liberal communism or socialism being demanded in Prague and in Czechoslovakia was crushed by Soviet tanks, um, you know, mirroring the um, the similar situation in Hungary with Imre Noz in 1956. Uh, I think you have to think about one of the myths around 1968, which is that it wasn't so much a reaction against the French Communist Party as a sort of recalibrating of the horizons of the left from the Soviet Union towards Cuba and towards China and East Asia and towards Latin America, um, but also um, a recalibration of their sort of intellectual and cultural influences. Um, we had a brief conversation before the show, and uh, influential as Herbert Marcuse's text One Dimensional Man was, his critique of both Western capitalism and Soviet bureaucracy, um, that text was not uh, would not have been available to the students at the start of 1968. Uh, but I think it's interesting to um, think about how there were some sort of Marcusean ideas, um, if not directly from Marcuse, circulating amongst the students. There were certainly some feminist currents. Um, there was the influence of, I think, uh, the Beats in North America, and also this idea of happenings. I want to talk briefly mm. about the Provos in the Netherlands, um, because I just find them very interesting. Um and there were you know, analogous disturbances in Amsterdam a couple of years earlier that sort of grew out of grew out of these happenings, and particularly uh, Robert Jasper Grootveld, who held these kind of anti-smoking happenings in 1964, um, and he was sort of backed up by the theorist Roel van Doyne. Um, and their main aim was to promote the police. They actually described the police as uh, essential non-creative elements for a successful happening, um, and they produced a number of like street actions. And they managed to get both the mayor and the Amsterdam chief of police to resign by 1967, um, at which point Grootveld and the editor of the Provo publication, uh, Rob Stolk, um, ended the project. Um, so I think, you know, we can we can see there are a, um, a kind of potent mix of reactions against previous generations, channeling of a number of sort of political, intellectual and cultural um, currents um that were prevalent um even if the situationists Guy Debord and Raoul Vanagum in particular even if they're two texts published at this time the Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord his critique of um the kind of political use of images and imagery uh and also Raoul Vanagum's Revolution of Everyday Life uh which identified boredom as one of the um major problems for um, people looking at their future in Western Europe, um, even if they weren't as influential as their kind of 
propagators have have maybe claimed. Um, I wonder if we could maybe talk about the the sort of specifically political actions um, that took place in May '68, um, the relationship of the protesters to the idea of seizing power. Um, the orders that the French police had not to fire on people and the effect that that had, um, their attitude to sort of traditional leaders and trade unions. I wonder if we could maybe explicate that for, for our listeners. Sure. But I, I, that's a really interesting point, though, that you made there, Julian, about boredom, because one of the most famous or famously wrong uh, articles was written in April of 1968 in Le Monde by a really well, highly thought of... Uh, journalist, uh, Vincent Ponte, and the title of the article was, it was, no, March, sorry, was uh, When France is Bored. And it was all about how France was bored and things were going on all over the world, like the provost. Uh, and it was all passing France by. And France was just dead, flat, calm, with really no chance of anything happening and nobody being inspired to do anything, so it's really pretty funny that this, you know, the, uh, that 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 was that was said. So the issue of boredom was uh, was viewed slightly differently. Now, um, and also uh, again, you know, you bring up the the provost. So the pro there was terrific and a tremendous amount of contact among student radicals uh, all over Europe. It's very easy to go from Amsterdam to Paris, and usually the trip was from Amsterdam to Paris, not Paris, to Amsterdam, uh, or to go over to Germany in February 1968. There was a huge gathering of European anti-Vietnam War uh, uh, organizations and organizers, which everybody said was a source of inspiration. They all worked together, came up with strategies. Uh, and, And of course, what was also going on in the States. You know, you mentioned you mentioned the beats, but you know, as important, you know, I interviewed Jean-Jacques Lebelle, who translated the beats, because he was an, uh, of a different generation. But you know, the whole of the American counterculture was really important, as was the American anti-war movement, was a was a real inspiration. Now about violence, and so. The image that, that we that we have and that's been widely retailed over the over the decades since is about the, the extent of violence that went on in Paris. And whenever you see footage, there's always you see the the riot police, the CRS, wailing on 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 students, and sometimes even on 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 passersby. And so violence is like the image that we have of May '68: violence of the state against uh, the demonstrators, against its opposition. And, uh, you know, there's no question that there was a lot of violence going in that direction. But it has to be put into context also, into international context, both national and international. Because, for example, uh, over the course of the events, which lasted from May 3rd, first thing at the Sorbonne, to somewhere in mid-June, this is what the last date is, let's just say it was June 15th or June 18th, there were fewer deaths in France than we had in the U.S. in the first week of May 1970, when the U.S. invaded Cambodia. We had four people killed at Kent State, two people killed at Jackson State. There was one student killed over the course of the entire event. There were two workers killed. A third, if you want to count somebody, a communist who was hanging electoral posters at the, uh, 
just before the, the snap elections. So the violence, and it also went in both directions, that cops were really badly hurt. And, you know, violence was playing on in their heads also because an early incident, I think it was even on May 3rd, one of the reasons cops went out of control on May 3rd was they had heard that one of their own had been either mortally or, or badly injured by the cops, by the students, and they were just out of control. But the violence was kept, uh, a li- there was, there was a lid was kept on the violence on both sides. People, somebody like uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit or Alain Cravine, the leader of the Trotskyists, the Jeunesse Communiste Revolutionnaire, st- still brag about the role they played in keeping things calm. But nobody played a bigger role, a more important role, a more central role than Maurice Grimaud, who was the prefect of police in Paris, who all through the events ordered his uh, officers not to even beat the students, you know, that if you have somebody captured, if you hit them, you're hitting yourself. And uh, the question has, has long been, why was there so little violence? They never fired on the crowds. One prefect in Nantes asked for permission to fire on the crowd, and it was denied him by the government. But in Paris, Maurice Grimaud refused to allow massive violence to be used on the students, and the, the, the reason was students were viewed by the workers as, the future, as their future bosses, as the children of bourgeois. And it, to a large extent, they were. And you're not going to fire on students if you're firing on the children of ministers. And Grimaud's sons had, had one or two sons who were on the barricades. The prefect of police had two. So he refused to like dehumanize the students into just like this, you know, these awful smelly group of, of young people. And so the violence was not nearly as terrible as, uh, as people have uh, thought it to be. Sure. I mean, one thing that might be interesting to talk about here uh, very briefly, because I want to move the discussion on, but um, if we could just touch on attempts to kind of, um, on the part of the protesters to um, integrate or ingratiate themselves within uh, factories um, and, you know, more traditional kind of working class work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to overestimate the importance of uh, workerism in the French, uh, on the French left. And so very early on, it was workers and, workers and students had to unite. So the, the workers, the students were forever going out to the factories to offer the, the workers their assistance, come join us. And it really never took, and this is a point of controversy, because the question is, why didn't it take? And mil- many of the people that I, uh, that I interviewed blamed the Communist Party, that the workers would have united with the students, but the, the Communist Party and the union, the CGT, wouldn't allow it to happen. But I'm, I, I'm unconvinced because for the workers, and the work- I interviewed workers, and I've interviewed children of workers, and they all said how they, either the, the, they themselves or their parents really hated the students because who were these people to come out and tell us uh, what we should do? You know, Louis Althusser, you know, the great uh, communist philosopher and theoretician, in his co- correspondence with Marie Antonietta Machocchi, 
specifically talked about that. Who are they to come and offer us help? They should be coming to us for us to give them help. And, uh, and this really was a, a widespread attitude among, among the workers. The students had a hard time expect, uh, accepting that, so they blamed the communists. And like I said, I'm not quite certain that it was all just the workers had no independent will, and they would have joined in with the students had they been allowed to. But also, you know, you talked about the situationists. And, you know, the situation, you know, the, the, even when they were a very small group at the time, De Boer, you know, expelling people every 20 minutes. But their slogans and their spirit were all over the students. And the example I love to give is, you know, the, the great situationist graffiti, never work. That's great if you're living on the, uh, you know, on the left bank and you're going to the Sorbonne, you're going to Sancier, or you're going wherever. If you're a minor in the north, what could a slogan like never work possibly mean? So things like that you know, prevented it from ever joining. And it's where film, and especially militant film, serves, I think, as a great historical document because you see masses of students marching out to factories on the outskirts of major cities or even within major cities, and you see the workers behind their locked gates, sometimes waving, sometimes they're all waving clenched fists, sometimes they're all singing the Internationale together, but they never, ever, ever unite. So, I, you, know, f- you know, film and, and, and photography, but especially film, are really precious in showing just h- how hard that was to get it to happen. Yeah, um... You're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM and uh, I'm your host Juliet Jakes and today I am talking to Mitch Abador about the relationship between May 68 in France and especially Paris and radical filmmaking. Uh, so I want to move the discussion more explicitly onto film now. Um, I mean, I, like maybe a lot of people who are interested in this particular relationship between art and politics and this particular time and place, uh, one of my starting points was Guy Debord and the Situationist International, and particularly Guy Debord's films. Um, now, Debord hadn't actually started filmmaking at this point, um, so we can't talk of any um, direct influence um, of Debord. Well, no, actually, sorry, no, I apologise. He had started filmmaking. He hadn't turned Society of the Spectacle into a film at this point. That happened later. Um, certainly there's been a lot of myth-making here because both Guy Debord and uh, Isidore Isou, um, his precursor in the Lettrist International, which was the kind of avant-garde group that um, sort of was a spiritual antecedent to the situationists, a kind of bridge between the Dadaists and the situationists in some ways. Um, both Isu and De Boer have claimed quite a lot of intellectual influence over, over the events of May 68. In fact, Verso Books have just published, um, you know, a very sort of entertaining in some ways, um, tracked by Isidore Isu, written about himself in the third person, uh, where he claims an awful lot of influence over over the protests of 68, and we will tweet that out after the show. Um, And certainly, you know, some very um, things that, at least on paper, were quite interesting came out of the lettrist and situationist uh, film culture. Um, You know, I'm thinking of of Isu's own sort of very avant-garde film essay, uh, A Tree Size and Venom and Eternity, made in the early 50s. 
and uh, Gil Wallman's uh, film Lanti Concept uh, made around the same time where uh, a flickering light was projected onto a weather balloon and there was, um, I think to my mind, a very beautiful and poetic kind of monologue that would be read over that. Um, it was also 1952 was the year of Guy Debord's uh, first film, uh, Howlings in Favour of Dessart. And, you know, this group kind of announced themselves with a very vocal attack on Charlie Chaplin for identifying himself with the poor and making any attack on Chaplin an attack on the poor. Um, and I think something that was happening there and maybe something that spiritually tied in with, with 68 was a kind of attack on the sort of leftists of the 1930s. We've already talked about Andre Malro. Uh, we could also mention briefly... Uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit's attack on the surrealist writer Louis Aragon, um, calling him a Stalinist lowlife rather unfairly because Aragon, you know, supported the protests of 1968 and denounced the sending of the tanks into Budapest in 1956. Uh, but nonetheless, we can see a sort of reaction against the generation of 1936, the sort of interwar sort of communist, socialist and popular front uh, kind of culture. What we can also see, I think, is um, changes in the French new wave that had emerged round about contemporaneously, maybe slightly later than the lecturist and situationist film film culture. Um, you know, you've already talked about uh, Francois Truffaut, Stolen Kisses. Uh, but I think this might be a good moment to talk about uh, people like Jacques Rivette and also Guy Debord's real bête noir, Jean-Luc Godard. Um, and how their practice sort of changed around 1968. Well, you know, we should never forget another one of the uh, the uh, graffiti of May 68, which was Godard, the biggest ass uh, of... Uh, wait, the biggest ass among pro-Chinese Swiss. So, uh, and, you know, I was just making notes on what you were saying there, Julia, that... For the most part, anyway, the total questioning, you know, the, the way that Debord and Izu and all these, uh, uh, you know, the letterists, letterists and the uh, situationists question cinematic language in like a really fundamental way that you don't see it quite to that extent. You know, in the new wave, uh, you know, certainly Truffaut just made the best of uh, cinema as it was always made, and it was one of the reasons that Godard grew to hate him and and treated him with total disrespect. And Godard, even though his uh, his films, uh, a film like La Chinoise, you know, which was from 1967, and it, it was a precursor of, it, it was a group of Maoists, and it was still like within a certain tradition of cinema that he would then leave behind after May 68. You know, May 68... For, for many artists, for many uh, for filmmakers like Godard, led to a complete rejection of like the standard cinematic practice. And for example, it grew, you know, that he would consider a film like Z, and he did consider a film like Z as all but a fascist film. The Costa Gavras film that right. responded to the, um, the establishment case. of the Greek. Right, the Lambrakis case in uh, the assassination of uh, Lambrakis in Greece, which was a really exciting a gripping film, totally in like the investigative uh, genre. You know, it could be a, a police film about anything else, but the politics were really important and you get swept up in it. And 
you know, so even if it's not quite situationist, it's not quite Debose blank screen for, you know, with uh, reading a text over it, Godot's practice with the Ziga Veritov group after May 68 is as, is as stiflingly boring and as impossible to watch as situationist cinema. I, I prefer situationist cinema, actually, to... Um... So the so the, on, the only um, Zigovertov group film I've watched, um, I've had about five of them uh, sitting around on my laptop for about 13 years. And in preparation for the show, I finally brought myself to watch Pravda last night, uh, which I chose because it was the shortest of the ones that, uh, that I had to hand. Uh, Pravda was made in 1970 by um, Godard and uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin, um, who were sort of the two figureheads of the Zigovertov group. And it was filmed kind of surreptitiously in Czechoslovakia after after the suppression of the Prague Spring. And I mean, it does some interesting things, I think, to talk about the relationship between image and sound. In that respect, it's picking up on some of the ideas in a very radical manifesto signed by um, Sergei Eisenstein and Grigory Alexandrov in the USSR in 1929 or 1930 with the coming of sound Soviet cinema. And maybe thinking, again, like the letterists, thinking about kind of film history and film form and thinking about certain paths that weren't taken. Um, so there are sort of frequent moments where the the sound and the images and the, the film contains a lot of still images do kind of jar with each other. Um, politically, the film sort of chastises the Prague Spring for rejecting Soviet, you know, sort of Soviet-imposed form of communism, um, but looking towards the United States for its inspirations. The film sort of suggests that uh, Mao's China in the grip of the Cultural Revolution would be a better place for them to look, which is not necessarily a take that's aged that well. Um, and the film also sort of chastises Milos Forman for going to work in the US um, and sort of suggests that his work after emigrating is far less interesting. Um, and the film also involves uh, Vera Chitilova, whose um, who's film Daisies from 1967, um, I think is an interesting sort of precursor to some of the feminist filmmaking we're going to talk about soon. Um, and I mean, my, my overriding reaction to Pravda was thinking like, who on earth is this film for other than Goddard himself? Um, you know, to my mind, his sort of previous films... Um, and so things like masculine and feminine uh, actually have a far more interesting and playful um, and I think intelligent, certainly less didactic critique of capitalism. Um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel that the Ziga Vertov work has aged particularly well. Um, but it's not that it, didn't age, it hasn't aged well. Even at the time, as somebody who was around at the time, the films were unwatchable 50 years ago. Yeah. And you know, like you know, I recently watched uh, or rewatched a whole bunch of them. And if your idea of exciting and revolutionary cinema is watching somebody working on an assembly line for twenty minutes, then have at it. I mean, watch your Godard films. But it was, in a sense, like the Godard, the, these films that he made as the Zigovertov group, is they're indicative of the complete lack of touch not just with the working class but with reality of so much of the the French far left especially after 68 where they think this is the chance to you know 
you know, the, the struggle will continue. And so, the, so they're taking it on another front and questioning absolutely everything in society, including, like I said, cinematic language. But who, like, you, you're exactly right. Who is the film for? You know, that if, uh, you know, we were discussing this a little bit before, shortly before the events, just a couple of years before the Ziga Vertov uh, monstrosities. Uh, the great Chris Marker made a film, 1967, called Abiento J'espère, in which he filmed the workers at a factory in Besançon. And uh, so he shoots this film. It's, you know, kind of, you know, typical workerist stuff. You know, it would have fit in quite nicely in the 1930s, although those films were a good deal more poetic. You know, the films uh, that, came, that Renoir made for the Communist Party are really much more poetic than this. But, and he shoots the workers... And then there's a film, he went back to show the film to the workers, which I don't know that Godard ever did. Actually show a, a, a film aimed at the working class to the working class, and the people who were in the film told Marker, you're exploiting us as badly as the capitalists, and also, you never show us smiling. You make it look like we're miserable all the time. And Marker then turned cameras over to the workers, and said, I want you guys to make working class films. And they didn't make assembly line films. They didn't make Anvia Zemsky reading a text from, uh, from Lenin or whoever. They shot Mireille Mathieu, the popular singer, on the TV. And so, you know, the, the, the Giga Vertov films are a great example of how so much of the French intellectual left viewed the workers as they wanted them to be not as they really were. And we also need to be pointed out that, that, in, uh, that Godard insulted Truffaut constantly after 68, but I forget which film it was. He, went to, he's, he wrote a letter to Truffaut insisting that Truffaut give him the money he needed for the film, and Truffaut finally said to Godard what Godard needed to be told, you know, which basically he was a low-life and a, and a worthless human being. I don't like Godard. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is maybe an interesting moment to um, to move away from Godard, but to stick with this kind of idea of collective filmmaking uh, that came out of um, came out of '68, uh, and to to talk a bit more about Chris Marker and the Cinetract. So the Cine Tracts are a really curious bunch of films. They were four-minute films made uh, more or less anonymously, by so nobody is identified in these films. Interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, I sh they, we presented them in Brooklyn, and I did, like, real-time footnoting of them. So there were 26 or 28 uh, Cine Tracts, although somehow we showed Cine Tracts 68 and 106. So it's some weird numbering system. We have number 106 of 26. And so they're these very brief, very militant films. And it's also, it's an interesting, you, 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 you talk about collective filmmaking. When anybody talks about the cine tracks, they talk about the eight that Godard made. So everybody knows which ones he made because they have his like typical, his fingerprints are all over them. So they were these really brief, brief agitprop films. And... With the Godard ones, you can tell they're Godard. They're full of uh, wordplay, rather juvenile, as uh, as as I would expect. Uh, and it's image after image. They kind of look like political versions of Chris Marker's 
great film La Jetée. There's no movement in any of these. It's all still images or, you know, film images that were turned into stills, usually of somebody beating a student or of a student looking dead on the floor, the occasional slogan. Uh, and the question is, what were they intended for? And, and I've never found a good answer. And they could not have been shown during the events of May 68. Because Cinetrack number three shows the funeral of Gilles Totin, the only student who died during the events, and he died on June 15th. I'm sorry, the funeral was June 15th. So the events were over. And I know from having interviewed one of the Milton filmmakers from 68, Michel Andrieux, that labs were closed. So you had when you shot footage, you then had to send it to, get it to Brussels, have it developed and brought back. So it took a fair amount of time. But the cine trucks are, it's hard to tell just to what extent how that group worked uh, because they do have like semi-distinct styles uh, and but they, they're both the product of the myth of 68 and the creators of the myth of 68 because it's, it's always violence, it's barricades that are the same images that show up in, in many of these films and, there's, and they're tracts there's they're all in unencumbered. Anybody watching them, you come out of it, it's unencumbered by the thought process. It's purely emotional editing. It's funny, you brought up Eisenstein, and even though Godard named his group after Zygo Vertov in opposition to Eisenstein, the editing is, is really what's key in these films to keep them exciting and keeps them moving. So, you know, and the, but the cine tracks, you know, in, in that in the sense that they were group filmmaking, were a continuation of what was going on during the events. There was a group called the uh, Group Arc, and they were all over uh, both Paris and France as a collective, shooting all this stuff under the name Arc, ne never under their own names. And when I asked, you know, somebody who was in the group, you know, it was, he said it was the period. No, so we don't have our names on any of the films, because it's all supposed to be a collective uh, work. And so, it, I mean, in that way, it was it reflected in how films were made, the atmosphere of the time, that the individual filmmaker is is not what what or who matters. And this is partly a reaction against the kind of auteurism of the new wave, right? Is that well, it, it's, 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 it's really more, it's, you look, more of a reflection, I think, of because they admired auteurism. You know that you know these same filmmakers were big fans of Brisson and uh, uh, Orson Welles, but it's just this whole ethos that everything is a collective action in opposition to the way things are. So that's why in cinema there's the Estates General of Cinema, where the, the where the they organize the the, the uh, filmmakers all gather together and they form their own organization in opposition to the producer, producers and the government structures that had ruled uh, cinema since Vichy to make it, uh, to give the, the filmmaker, the film worker, more of a voice in what's made and how it's made. And in fact, during the events, you had to have a special pass from the Estates General to be allowed to, to use a camera and shoot on the streets. You know, so they, it's, you know, in a sense, in opposition to state power, they set up their own parallel power. Can we talk for uh, briefly, you mentioned Michel Andria, um, and I'd like to talk briefly about him and also about the film uh, La Reprise du Travail aux Usines Vendée, um, which, you know, in a way, 
nods back to the very beginnings of film in France. You know, there's there's an obvious uh, reference there to the um, workers leaving the factory, the early Lumiere film. Um, but I wonder if we could talk briefly about that film, its fate, um, and, you know, it's one of the very few cinematic artefacts come directly out of the events of May 68. And I wonder if we could just elaborate on that for a couple of minutes. Right. So La Reprise du Travail aux Usines Wonder is the return to work at the Wonder Factories. And it, there are four, in my humble opinion, four great films from and about May 68. And number one is The Return to Work at the Wonder Factory. It's, it's 10 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube, although there's a new print. We'll tweet the link. Yeah. With, with uh, fabulous new subtitles. Uh, that's Iskra, actually uh, Chris Marker's uh, production company, has just re-released. Uh, so there's that film. There's uh, William Klein's May Days. There's uh, Half a Life by Romain Goupy and In the Intense Now, which we'll talk about later. But The Return to Work at the Wonder Factory is a great story. It was supposed, it's 10 minutes and... Thank God, it's all, it's all that's left of a film that, thank God, is lost. It was two uh, Trotskyist, three Trotskyist filmmakers, students at the uh, National Film School, Lidek, and they were making a film called Sauve qui peut Trotsky, Save Who Can Trotsky. And it was going to be this real hardcore militant film. It was going to have like a speech from the leader of their party, which was the Lambertist, uh, Trotskyist group, and they were roaming the streets of Paris with camera and microphone. And they see a crowd gathered in front of a factory, and they and you can see it in the film. They just approach this crowd, and there's this young woman who's beside herself with rage, and she does not want to go back to work. The workers at the factory had voted 500-some-odd to 200-some-odd to go back to work. It was a battery factory. Working conditions were terrible. She refuses to go back. You know, nothing has changed. Everything is exactly as it was. And even though nobody is identified, you see all the characters of May 68 are in this 10-minute film because the woman is furious. She's beside herself. She doesn't want, want to go back to work. And there are two people, two union people, convincing her, you know, we got what we could, don't worry about it, you know, we're going to fight for more. No, 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 I'm not going back in that into that prison. I'm not going back. No, you're filthy up to here. This is terrible. And you have these two guys, clearly communists. You know, we got the best we could get, which was the communist line. We'll fight for more. They won't be able to treat us shabbily anymore. Don't worry about it. We'll get better. And there's a student off to the side who's backing the woman. And the communist, clearly he's a Maoist or a trot of some kind. And the workers finally say, the communist workers finally say to him, oh, you're like, do you work here? Like, do you know what you're talking about? You know, the typical uh, attitude looking down on the workers, on the students, which I think is justified, but um, that you expect from the communists. And ultimately, everybody goes into the factory and we never see what happened. We don't see the woman. The film ends just like that in the middle of people. The personnel director says, everybody who works at the Wonder Factory, please come back in. And you don't see what happens to, to the woman. And it's just such a perfect summation in 10 minutes of the situation at the end of the events. But it's also led to some interesting debates you know, that I participated in. Because the question is, what did she want? And so just as in the film, there's like the argument over what... Uh, uh, whether they should go back, 
was she asking for a different society or just a better life in the existing society? Because she never says, I'm not going back into that prison because I want to overthrow capitalism and have the workers run the factory. She just says, the conditions are terrible, they treat us terribly, I'm not going back in there. Other people, when they watch the film, said, no, this is clearly a critique of capitalism, and which I don't see. Now, just a footnote to it is, the film's only 10 minutes long, and there's a, a filmmaker named Hervé Leroux who made a film around the 40th anniversary of May 68, and, or 30th, to try and find the woman. And the film has been, is being re-released end of this month in France. It's called Reprise. And it's, if those of you who are listening in New York, it's showing uh, in New York at the Metrograph. Uh, I'm going to give it away. He never found her. All we know is her name. Her name was Jocelyne, and that's all we know about it. She got married, and she moved out of Paris. But it's, it's the great film. And one of the stories that Michel Andrieux, who I interviewed and who is a, a radical filmmaker, said was, even though everything about this film was accidental, the, the people who made it still argue over who should get credit for it. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's incredibly interesting. And, and I certainly want to, want to see the documentary about Jocelyn. Um, I want to move the conversation on now. We have 15 minutes left here on uh, Suite 212, Resonance 104.4 FM. I want to move the conversation on to um, kind of what happened after May 68. Um, certainly there are lots of interesting currents in French filmmaking that come out of May 68. Uh, and there may be not so much workerist currents as sort of queer and feminist currents and kind of countercultural currents. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about the sort of um, the introduction of the Sony Porter Pack video camera to France in that year uh, and some of the feminist filmmaking it enabled. Uh, most notably some of the works of Carol Rossopoulos, um, and to give us um, another nice, neat link back to the sort of 1930s generation of um, cultural radicals. Um, she was quite close friends with Jean Genet, who urged her to buy a video camera and uh, helped her set up her first known film. Um, Genet talks about Angela Davis from 1971. Uh, it's a compilation of sort of raw footage from several different takes where um, Genet reads a statement against the arrest of... Um, the activist Angela Davis in New York that year um, and emphasizes um, the word supporting Davis's involvement with the Black Panther Party and the civil rights movement. Um, you know, certainly uh, during and after 1968, there are lots of interesting um, kind of international radical film cultures or individual directors who produce quite radical works. You know, I'm thinking of... Um, Paolo Pasolini's works after 1968, leading up to uh, Salo in 1975. I'm thinking in the UK, people like Lindsay Anderson's very well established, but made the film If in 1968, and the emergence of the new German cinema movement. Um, and when we talk about uh, films that kind of document the lives of the working class, uh, I think one of the greatest works to come out of this is Rainer Werner Fassbinder's series, Eight Hours and Not a Day, which is sadly never finished, but it was made in the early 70s uh, for German television. And it sort of documents the efforts of workers not just to self-organise, but also their kind of personal and private and romantic lives. Um, I think all of that is very interesting. Um, the continued work of collectives like Videa and Video Out 
in France of feminist uh, film groups around filmmakers like Daphine Seyrig and Joanna Vida, uh, as well as Rosopoulos, who I've already mentioned. Um, again, these often sort of these films often referred back to the Spanish Civil War and the radical culture around them, as well as sort of radical feminism. Um, indeed, Rosopoulos made a filmic response to Valerie Solanas's Scum Manifesto. Uh, and I think 1968 also opened the doors to um, some sort of interesting queer filmmaking that sort of reached its height at the end of the 1970s in France with uh, the filmmaker Lionel Soukar uh, and his film Last Dip, um, a century of images of homosexuality made with the queer theorist Guy Hockenham. Um, so you had the first 10 years after... 1968, where you had a sort of continuing burst of radical activity that I think, you know, sort of largely um, it sort of peters out or is bought out or it burns out with things like the um, the sort of the um, the Bader Meinhof group in Germany and its eventual, um, you know, kind of suicide by cop, I guess. Um, with the years of lead in Italy, obviously the murder of Pasolini in 1975, the um, kidnapping and killing of the former Prime Minister, Aldo Moreau, uh, which you can find documentation of in Marco Bellocchio's film, Good Morning Night, uh, from 2003. And in France, I think, with the ascension of Francois Mitterrand to the presidency in 1981 um, and the subsequent sort of inability of Mitterrand to... Um, realize any of the demands uh, that came through the communists and socialist parties in France um, due to sort of international capital sort of closing ranks. Um, which I think brings us on to um, the last thing I want to talk about in the last 10 minutes of the show, which is sort of the crystallization of May 68, um, particularly through film um, and sort of ongoing discussions of the legacy of May 6th. Yeah, I know you wanted to talk about um, Juan Moreira Saez's his, uh, his film No Intenso Agora in The Intense Now and how that covers the legacy of 68. Yeah, so that film, uh, you know, Joao Moreira Salas uh, is a Brazilian who happened to be living in Paris in 1968 because his father was the Minister of Finance in Brazil under and who was in the government that was overthrown by the military coup, and his family moved to Paris. He was only six years old during the events. He has no recollection. But he, and he analyzes May 68 in the context of uh, a visit his mother made to China at around that time. And he, so this question that he raises throughout the film is, what happens when happiness ends? And it's, it's not an idea that people like to confront. Because if the if everybody's images of May was like a wonderful wonderful thing and somehow its spirit lived on, the fact is, it that it in many ways it didn't, and there was terrible terrible depression that set in, which gets shown in the film that I mentioned, Half a Life. The French title is uh, Mourir à Trente Ans, which begins with like a litany of the names of people who were active in May '68 who committed suicide as did the subject of the film, who was a Trotskyist uh, militant in, in 68. And so Joao's film is uh, an examination of May 68, 
a beautiful film essay, kind of inspired by Chris Marker, particularly uh, Grin Without a Cat, looking at the imagery of May 68, uh, looking at the experience of May 68, as, as uh, to tell us what happens when it ends, and why does it end, and how positive was it, and what were the flaws within May 68, and indeed within political activism all along. So he has some really brilliant scenes of funerals, political funerals in Czechoslovakia, in Brazil, and in France to show how at the funerals, the person who is dead, the political, who was killed for political reasons, who committed suicide for political reasons like Jan Palik in, uh, who uh, set himself on fire in, uh, in uh, Czechoslovakia, how the person disappears and all that lives is or survives is the symbol. As, and so he, he does really brilliant stuff about how political activism can suck the humanity out of the people who think they're fighting for humanity because everybody just becomes a representative of something else. But he also uh, looks at what was the positive spirit, you know, in May 68. So he loves, Con, the, you know, Conbendit's playfulness, uh, in you know, especially among all the leaders. But there's the, the central figure in this film, and she shows up in the middle of it and towards the end of it, is this young woman uh, who's uh, on the phone with uh, somebody whose son or brother has been out demonstrating. They haven't heard from him in a week. And where she's surrounded by a bunch of guys, and they're all being flip and obnoxious. And this young woman is treating this the, the person on the other end seriously. Don't worry. Well, he's doing fine. Don't worry. He's great. Oh, no. Okay, David. Okay, give me his name. If I see him, I'll deliver a message. That, that even within these large events, it could still be, there still can be humanity. And... She shows up towards the uh, end of the film as one of the faces of the, the possibilities that May 68 was. But it's a really serious and insightful examination of what was good about May and what wasn't so good about May and why and how it failed. And so the film will be getting a commercial release here because it only had one showing at the ICA, but it's going to have a, a couple-week run. And so people really should go to see it. Yeah, I mean, I will definitely be going to uh, to watch it. it. It sounds like an absolutely fascinating take on take on the event. I mean, you you mentioned uh, Chris Marker's um, A Grim Without a Cat, uh, which came out in the late seventies. I wondered if we could just touch on um, how that kind of captured the events of of sixty eight, um, and your kind of feelings on that. Well, because the film, it has a section on May, on May 68. But Marker, who was such a, a central figure in revolutionary filmmaking from the 60s all the way up until his death, who helped people all over the world. So it's a reflection on the entire, you know, 68 has a, a key part to play in it. But it's, it's, a, it's an examination of the entire phenomenon of leftism from the 60s all the way through, through all the great hopes of the 60s to the beginning of the disappointments of the 70s and then the crushing of any, well, actually the film, right, 1978. So by 1978, it's all pretty, it's all already pretty grim. And he has 
the genius of Chris Marker is that is his ability to pick out the right moment. And what he, he does a great thing because Fidel Castro was one of the central figures in this film, as he was for people of my generation. I'm of the generation of 68. And he shows Fidel as a young man in his fatigues, moving, as he's speaking to the crowds, he's moving the mics around. He's moving the mics around. He's pushing them. And he's like, and then as a, as a, as a metaphor for what he'd become in the Cuban revolution he'd become, later on, he's wearing his formal, his dress uniform, and the mics are fixed. And he can no longer adjust them. And it's just an absolutely brilliant moment in showing what happens when revolutions become ossified. And the question it raises as the Joao's film is, are all revolutions doomed to ossification or failure? And it's a question that people on the left don't like to ask, Mm -hmm. but people really do need to ask those questions. Well, I mean, we've we've seen this with every anniversary of um, of 1968. I mean, there was an article about the filmic legacy of May 68 published in uh, Vertigo magazine 10 years ago, um, looking at Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, asking the question in 2007, saying, in this election, it's a question of whether the heritage of May 68 should be perpetuated or liquidated once and for all. Uh, we also have, of course... Um, our dear centrist friend Emmanuel Macron, um, you know, having been elected as president of France last year, um, simultaneously talking about May '68 being, you know, now an ossified part of France's valuable radical history that goes back to, you know, obvious point of 1789, um, and at the same time, it's looking like there is going to be quite a lot of intense sort of radical activity, strikes, and student revolts against Macron's Thatcherite agenda. Well, but, you know, because we must be closing it on the end, but I would like to end, even though it, it goes against my character, to end on a, on a positive note. And that's that in, in, in February of this year, the Magazine Littéraire uh, published a, a poll they had taken. I think it was Harris, some re, real poll company had, had done it. And 79%, despite Sarkozy and despite intellectuals who talk about May 68 was a terrible thing, that everything bad in France grew out of May 68, 79% of the the French believe it was a positive event. 78% of people who voted National Front think it was a positive event. Even among those who voted for the most, the dullest of the conservatives, François Fillon, more than half of them thought that May 68 was a positive event. And so despite, you know, the attempt by the Sarkozy to, 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 to downplay it, the French still think, all in all, they needed it. And so there is, you know, if, if, the, if the whole future might not be golden, but there was a past that was necessary to get them where they are today. Yeah, I think that's that's a lovely place to end. Um, I've also been uh, very moved by the attempts at Nanterre University commissioning a mural to commemorate May 68, and this being defaced by slogans such as Greek antiquity does not belong to you, or there's beauty in sabotage, um, that shows there are a lot of people that, despite all these attempts at ossifying and reifying the spirit of May 68, I think still get it. 
Uh, that's all we've got time for on Suite 212 today. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Mitch Abador, my guest, and to James Butler, our sound engineer today from Navarra FM. Um, listen to them talk about May 68 very soon. And I hope you join me again next month when I'll be spending an hour with um, a wonderful writer and a dear friend of mine, Sheila Hetty, talking about her work. Thanks a lot. Take care. Goodbye.